Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When I was in my 20s, I was a journalist for Time magazine, and I was spending a lot of time in war zones in the middle of Nicaragua and El Salvador. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And then I returned to my parents' home in Santa Barbara, the most privileged, affluent, gated community. And my house burnt down with me inside it, stuck next to the burning house for three hours. And it just reminded me that at some level, you're never safe anywhere. And that therefore, you might as well give yourself up to the unknown. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I tend to move about the world a lot. I've learned I find my peace in movement, my sense of belonging, not in a cosy family home, but among strangers. A chance meeting at a bar in a foreign city, chatting on a rocky outcrop in some alp or another. I connect in with and get intimate with humanity in the unfamiliar. Now, some of you know, I lived on the road for the better part of my adult life. I head out, then I draw back to home, close to wherever the bulk of my friends and family are, and in Australian nature. I go back and forwards. It's kind of a pulse. Of course, over the years, I've been aware of all the adages that are chucked at people like me, like, wherever you go, there you are, and, and that Dorothy one from The Wizard of Oz. If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. And indeed, I've wondered why I'm drawn to novelty and what I'm searching for or whether I'm searching for anything at all. It's a kind of creative tension that I live in and one that I think most humans feel at various times in their lives. The desire to be at home and the almost competing yearning to head out on, I don't know, a hero's journey or as prodigal sons or daughters as ducks that go over the proverbial hill one day. Now, my guest today has also lived this creative tension and has woven a spiritual story between the two polar forces for close on half a century. Pico Ayer has been a travel writer for five decades. There's barely a place on the planet he has not written about for Time magazine, the New York Times, Harper's, indeed more than 250 publications worldwide. But he's also spent 30 years living out of monasteries and 48 years as a friend and travel companion to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Also, and this is Super interesting. He spent two decades as a close friend of Leonard Cohen. He's written 15 books, including the bestseller, 
The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere, and has four TED Talks which have received more than 11 million views on travel, on moving and stillness, the outer and the inner life. Pico dances the paradox as I do, and as many of us do, but with an intentionality that sees the paradox make perfect and beautiful sense. He can peaceably contain all the multitudes of what he calls the global soul. In his latest book, The Half-Known Life, he explores the paradox of the two urges in all of us, our need for stillness and a yearning to go out into the world and find paradises. He takes us to the dark side of paradise and gets us asking questions that we find ourselves asking at all levels of life. What are we looking for? How do we reconcile our yearning for the ideal with the never attaining it? Is happiness and our sense of Eden to be found in sitting in lotus position or in our engagement in the world? How do we touch paradise and realise it in a world that looks more like paradise lost and amid uncertainty, chaos and an increasing lived awareness of impermanence? And how do we take a feeling of home wherever we go in the world? I recorded this episode from my friend's study where I find myself in a, I guess, a liminal place. I've packed up my life, ready to head overseas, and in a few days I do take off into the world once again for at least six months to find, I don't know, love, humanity, my sense of belonging, to enter the unknown and the chaos. This conversation with Pico came at a perfect time, and perhaps it does for you too. Let's meet Pico Ayer. Pico, it's a joy to have you join me here on Wild. Finally. Finally, I've been waiting to talk to you for ages, Sarah, so I'm really happy to be here. Oh, wonderful. Look, I thought we might kick off with a little bit of a discussion about living minimally. It's something that I've lived to for quite some time and I espouse its virtues. But I know that you live minimally now, based out of Japan. But if I interpret it correctly, you were somewhat pushed by the universe to to land there about 20-odd years ago. Well, yes and no. I was living in New York City, a very exciting life, the kind of life I might have dreamed of as a boy in my 20s. And I left my apartment on Park Avenue for a single room on the back streets of Kyoto with, without even a telephone or a private toilet or anything. And then <laughs> three years after that, a wildfire burnt down my family home in California and I literally lost everything I owned. But in some ways, I'd been moving towards that simplicity already. And so one way or another, life gave me what I told myself I'd wanted. Yes, it can do that, can't it? When, you, when you're not ready to go there, the full hog yourself, you'll sometimes get a little nudge from the universe. So, so you arrived in Japan, though, and proceeded to sort of live out of a two-room apartment, and you've stayed with that way of life ever since. Yes. In fact, I've upgraded because when I moved to Japan, I, I was living in a temple and then I was living in just a single room, but I quickly met my soon-to-be wife and we moved down the road to a two-room apartment. And yeah, we don't have a car, we don't have a bicycle. And I sometimes horrify my friends and especially my bosses by saying I've to this day never used a cell phone. So very simple, really. 
That is simple. That's taking it to the next level. I get asked this question a lot, Pico. I get asked, you know, how do you travel so minimally? I travel a lot and I know you do too. And I often get asked, how many kilos have you reduced your possessions down to when you do travel? Well, I try just to take carry-ons. So if I can take two carry-ons with me, I'm very, very happy. And one of the things I love about travel is it teaches you how simply you can live and how many things you can do without. I mean, like everybody, I pack probably three times more than I need. But the hope is over many years, I slowly realize I don't need it at all. And I can really go as minimal as possible. Mm, yeah, I'm about the same. If I'm traveling for under, well, for, if it's a month, I can do a sort of a, a seven to 10 kilo carry on bag really comfortably. And then I can do a 15 kilo international carry on backpack for sort of up to six months at a time. It can be done. You are way ahead of me, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, no, you're traveling much lighter than, than I am. Oh, well, you know, I know that online some of the, the, the travel bros like to compete amongst these things. We don't need to. I'd like to move on to, to some, <laughs> some wiser thoughts, Pico. <laughs> Look, you've made a life's work out of exploring travel as well as the spiritual art of stillness, sort of like the outer and the inner worlds of humanity. And you've looked very closely at the paradoxes of where we find home and belonging. And I'd love to explore this a bit with you. You say that travel, once again, paradoxically, is spiritual. When we're in the routine of home life, we're often in our head. And when we travel, we confront ourselves, all the stuff we tend to avoid or bypass when we're at home. It's sort of counterintuitive, yet I know exactly what you mean. Could you explain a little bit further? Well, I think we travel to leave our habits behind as much as our home and to leave behind that sort of routinized, very circumscribed, limited self who sort of goes through the motions and sleepwalks through life. And I think one of the things I love about travel is instantly all my senses are on the setting marked on. I'm, I'm wide awake. I'm eager to be transformed, which I'm not when I'm sitting at home going through my routine. And, and I'm, I'm freed of many of the ways I define myself. If I'm walking down the street in Haiti, my business card, my resume, none of that means anything. The person I meet is just asking, are you a kind person? Who, what kind mm. of, are you an honest person? Who are you? I, it, the rest of it, all the extraneous stuff doesn't really matter. And I found that that applies even more when, for example, I used to travel with my mother and I felt as long as we were at home, we were stuck in these sitcom roles that we'd been playing out for 50 years. And even if I was 50 years old, she would see me as five years old and I would see her as the mother I had to rebel against. But as soon as we were in the jungles of Cambodia together, we were sort of on the same side of the table. We were fellow adventurers. We were sharing experiences and we were freed from the kind of dialogue that otherwise we'd be sharing every day. So I suppose when I travel by myself, I'm freed from the dialogue I otherwise would be conducting with myself every day and waiting to be surprised and taken somewhere I never dreamed. And I find that Almost every country that has helped make me who I am has opened up some corner of myself that I would never have known existed otherwise, has, has opened up a longing or an intimation or an emotion that in the normal run of things would be close to me. Yeah, I think there's an honesty, a real raw, original honesty in the way that we present ourselves when we travel. And so we're met by others you know, in their reaction to that. And I think we get to see a, a version of ourselves that we hanker for, which is that 
raw version of ourselves. And so I think, yeah, there's an edge that we go to, isn't there, when we're out there and people meet us for the first time and we meet the world for the first time. Yeah, and we can become somebody we never dreamed or expected, as, as you suggest, for better or for worse. And I even like talking a foreign language very badly or talking English to somebody for whom it's not her native tongue because instantly my communication, much purer, much clearer. I'm not trying to dazzle or delude her with words. I'm just speaking from my heart to her heart, and I feel liberated by that. Yeah. I often say, Pico, that when you can't speak the same language, you're forced to go to the really important stuff. I once had a a wild affair with a goat herder on a remote Greek island who, (laughs) who couldn't speak much English and I could speak even less Greek. But somehow we didn't really talk about the munitiae. We talked about the big stuff, like it was about love, what makes us happy. And really, I think that's all we ended up knowing about each other is what made us happy and what made us love. It was, yeah, it was a really, oh, it was a very intriguing part of myself that I could explore through that by not having the language of the everyday. You know, it, it, it really does force you once again to go to the edge of the big stuff. I love that. Not not having the language of the everyday, exactly. Not all that that clutter and detritus. I mean, I've actually been with my Japanese wife for 35 years now, and some people are quite surprised. She speaks limited English. I speak even more limited Japanese, and we've never had trouble communicating. And I have meant much worse communications problems when I'm here in California And there's the illusion of a common language, but I feel I'm always talking past most of the people around me. And you're right. I think when my wife and I talk, there's a real directness and we're talking about the essential stuff. And she knows me better than anybody on earth, even though we can't make long sentences with one another. Oh, wow. That's, I love that you've been doing that for 35 years. I did it for about six weeks with my, my Greek <laughs> goat herder, but it was enough to give me a craving for it. Yeah, look, as, as you know, Pico, I'm right now I'm sitting in this very bizarre liminal space. I've packed up my life and I'm heading out into the wide world once again. And I'm, I'm recording this in my friend's home. I'm somewhat homeless, you could say. And I'm wondering what you make of something I observe in myself. I I crave to know humanity, um, to understand the collective heartbeat and the, I guess, the collective yearning out there. But I find I can dial into it among strangers, but not everyone's the same. So there's people who are going to be listening who are like, oh gosh, you know, sitting at a foreign bar and talking to a stranger is the most terrifying thing I can think of. Do you find that there are different types of people or even stages in your life? Or do you think this is a commonality and it's just a matter of being able to put yourself in those positions to to go to more of an edge in ourselves? Well, to be honest, I'm really moved by your courage. And I know you've done many things like this before. And I, I do feel that not many of us are able to do that. But I think that travel imparts to us confidence. And people are scared of the world if they've never been out in the world. And the more you encounter the world, the more you see that your anxieties have nothing to do with the reality. So I can imagine that all Mm. the experiences you've had so far empower you and give you courage to, to make this leap. And when you were saying how scary it is to be at a foreign bar talking to a stranger, I would find it much scarier to be at a local bar in my hometown talking to a stranger one way or another, because I think we'd be judging each other and assessing each other and placing each other, not 
speaking in that essential way that you and your Greek goatherd were. And so I think, for example, I, I like very much being by myself. But as soon as I'm on the road, I'm much more gregarious. Strangers want to be my friends. I want to learn about their lives. And all kinds of doors are opened. And I think that's the beauty of travel, that you you do things you wouldn't think of doing otherwise. And it's mm. a way of almost recovering youth. When, you know, when I think of who I was when I was 18, and I did lots of things that make me shudder now, but I think, where is that recklessness? Where is that boy who is ready to take chances? I, I want more of that spirit in me now. And so for you to be taking off like that seems to me heroic and what I think many of us long to do at, at some level, because I think we get more and more cautious as the, as the years go by. And we're missing out on so much that happened when we were young. When when I was young, any anyone who offered me a ride or a hotel room, I would say yes. Often it was not a good idea, but it was almost as if my innocence protected me. So in truth, nothing bad ever happened. And I felt that, that the trust and innocence I brought to the world was in some ways repaid. So I wish I didn't have worries about going out into the world now because I don't think one should. Yeah, that's such an interesting point because interestingly, I when I was 18, I lived on the streets of Paris for about, oh, I think it was about three and a half weeks and really with nothing but the clothes I was wearing. I'd been mugged in Nice and it's, it's interesting. I'm going back to Paris at the age of 50 because there's there's an edge there for me. There's that memory of that spirit of freedom and trusting. And Pico, I'm also a terrible, well, no, I'm a wonderful hitchhiker, but I know that people get terribly <laughs> horrified by that idea. So, you know, if you're under the age of 18, block your ears at this point and don't get inspired by me at least. But I have always found I've hitchhiked in quite dangerous places, remote places from a young age. And I agree with you. I think I carry an energy of trust and people want to be trusted. I once hitchhiked up the Bruce Highway, which is a very lonely stretch where people do go missing between Brisbane and Cairns. I was riding, sorry, what I should say is I was riding my bike that distance and I was stopping off and staying in pubs with, with truck drivers who, you know, travel on their own. A young girl, I think I was 23 at the time, a young girl on her own pulling into, you know, these truck stops to stay the night, eating at the bar. They knew where I was heading the next day into another remote stretch. But all that did was brought out an urge in them to protect me, to do water drop-offs for me. And they'd do CB radio kind of hookups with other drivers and say, look out for this young girl, Sarah, you know, we're going to look after her. And I, I, I don't know if it's naive, but I choose to live with that kind of, of trust in my life. Yeah, I'm so touched by that story. And I'm thinking that the beauty of your returning to Paris now is that you don't know who you'll be or where you'll be or who you'll be with two weeks from now. And that's real mm. excitement and, mm. and adventure. And again, it goes back to where we began with my family house burning down. Because when I was in my 20s, I, I was a journalist for Time magazine. And I was spending a lot of time in war zones in the middle of Nicaragua and El Salvador, Cuba during its revolution, the Philippines during its turmoil. Nothing bad ever happened to me. And then I returned to my parents' home in Santa Barbara, the most privileged, affluent, gated community. And my house burnt down with me inside it, stuck next to the burning house for three hours. And it just reminded me that at some level, you're never safe 
anywhere. Yeah. And that therefore you might as well give yourself up to the unknown, <laughs> the geographically unknown, as well as every other kind of unknown. Because staying at home is no guarantee of anything. And the pandemic really reminded all of us of that. New York City was no safer than Afghanistan and probably more dangerous in many ways. Yeah, that's that's super true. I mean, you talk about travel being a way for us to confront ourselves. And so, you know, it's important from that point of view. But the other reason that you flag travel as important at a sort of a global level is is almost so that we come down, especially us in the West, especially us as writers, to come down from our ivory tower and actually meet the real humanity. And in, in your most recent book, The Half-Known Life, you have a chapter on Iran and, and there's a line in it that sort of struck me, you talk about how urgent it is to meet our global neighbours in the flesh. And similarly, in your chapter on North Korea, you realise that despite the internet, we just don't know the world until we go there. Do you feel that this imperative to actually be in the world and see humanity, meet humanity in the environment is important at this juncture in history and does it override, dare I say it, the damn carbon miles that are entailed? I think it does. I mean, I think travel has always been a luxury and now it's a necessity, a, a political, a moral, a social necessity. And I'm so glad you picked out those two chapters because their point is that we live in the age of information and I really feel we know less about the rest of the world than ever before and least of all about the countries we hear most about, such as Iran or North Korea or Yemen or Cuba. And in a curious way, as the world gets ever more global, it's easy for us to get ever more provincial and just surrounded by people who think like us and, and feel like us. And so, yes, I think it is a, a neighborhood and in any neighborhood, whether the global one or the one around you in, in Sydney, the really important thing is to meet the neighbors, find out who they are and tell them who you are. And the really scary person in any neighborhood is the one who bolts the door and, and draws the curtains and cowers or shouts behind the sofa. And it's interesting you mentioned North Korea because I think the reason North Korea is so scary is that its people have no sense of what you and I look like. So it's much easier for them to launch a missile against just an abstraction or a place on the map than if they could see our faces and hear our voices. But when I come back to the United States, I find that my neighbors here know nothing about North Korea. And we don't have the excuse of a totalitarian government that will execute us for looking at a foreign newspaper. So it's understandable that people in many parts of the world can't get to see the rest of the world. But I think for those of us in the United States or Australia or other developing countries, if we can summon the resources, we really need to get to know our neighbours. It's, it's a wonderful thing. We can get to know our neighbours just by going across town and Sydney and Melbourne are perfect examples of that. But I think seeing them in their context, and you're right, the, the climate crisis forces us to ask really difficult questions about how and why we're travelling. But I think the cost of ignorance overrides, as you perfectly said, the cost of mm. accumulating more of a carbon footprint, not knowing who, who we're dealing with because all our lives are interdependent. And if we don't know our neighbors, our lives are going to be even more unsettling than they are anyway. Yeah, I think there is an imperative to know humanity right now and to to see each other, look each other in the eyes as the world gets more fragmented. But of course, there's ways to travel. And part of the reason I'm 
I'm heading over to Paris is because I'll be based there doing train rides to other locations for for various work commitments. So it's more of a once a year thing. So there's responsible ways, I suppose, we we can all do it. But look, I do want to get to your new book. The title really intrigues me. It's The Half-Known Life. And I've read lots into what you might mean by this. I don't think you're referring to only knowing half your life if you don't go out into the world or only if you, you know, if you if you never stay home, you're always leaving. Nor do I think it's a direct reference to paradise, which is the subject of your book, being a partial experience. I feel you're referring to sort of maybe a permanent state of unknowing, like this idea of a shadow side to all of it and of having a foot in two worlds, you know, the material and the one that we came from that exists as a memory that we sort of spend a a lifetime trying to return to in some way. But I'd like your take, Pico. What does the title mean? Well, what you just said is, is, is so beautiful and I think it catches exactly the tone of what I was trying to get across, which is The longer I live, the more I feel the really essential stuff of life is something we can never explain. Suddenly you fall in love with a Greek goat herd. Suddenly my house burned down in a fire. Suddenly the pandemic shuts down the world. Suddenly you're moved to tears by something you see walking down the street. And none of that can be answered away or none of that can fit inside an explanation. And so... You know, I remember when I was a kid, I felt I knew it all. I'd been trained to to prize knowledge. And I thought, I'm on top of everything. I'm a master of the universe. And I'm so glad the older I get, I feel I'm a servant of the universe. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And just as you said wonderfully some minutes ago, life is going to nudge me in all kinds of ways I never could have guessed. In other words, I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. I'm really at the mercy of the heavens and other things. And I'm very glad not to claim to know things, to be freed from the illusion of of knowledge. Mm. You know, whenever we're really moved by something, I don't think we can offer explanations for it, and and that's wonderful. Yeah, I think so much of what you write about the subject matter in itself leads to a bunch of paradoxes that have parallels at all kinds of levels of our existence. You know, like it sort of parallels with you know this need to find peace in that uncertainty that you speak of, the impermanence and the suffering of, well, which is the shadow side of the paradises that you look at. And you wrote this book, of course, in the pandemic, during the pandemic, which was a real time of uncertainty. But I think we've merged into even more uncertainty in in recent years. I'm wondering if you feel that it's really about the struggle that we experience in trying to find paradise but never actually getting to it or never fully knowing it? Is, is, is that where we really find peace? Well, I do think thinking about paradise or searching for paradise often gets in the way of finding it. But I, I loved what you were saying at the beginning of that question in the sense that, uh, yes, this book did come out of the pandemic. We are living, as you said, in a time of uncertainty. The p- pandemic made it very obvious that we were doing so, but Right now, you and I can't tell anybody what's going to happen tomorrow or tonight. We're always in that state of uncertainty. And so during the pandemic, I was trying to think, how can we find light and hope in the middle of real life, which is always going to be difficult, and in the face of death, which is always going to be there. There's no (laughs) answering that away. And I think we can 
do that. You know, where, where I live most of the time in Japan, they speak about joyful participation in a world of sorrows. In other words, as you said, the world is impermanent. At some point, we lose everyone we care about and we lose ourselves. But none of that precludes delight, excitement, wonder. In fact, I think it makes it more necessary. The fact that we don't have all the time in the world is precisely the reason for finding inspiration wherever we can, right here, right now. I think I have a line in the book saying something like, the fact that nothing lasts is the reason that everything matters. And yes. I think that came home to a lot of us during the pandemic. We really felt keenly that sense of impermanence. And therefore, at least in my case, but I think many people, we are much more grateful. Oh, my mother's still alive. My wife and I are still healthy. We can still take walks every day. We were cherishing the things that otherwise we took for granted. And we were also remembering the things that really mattered. I think almost everybody across the globe, if they, if they had a roof over their heads and enough income to keep them going, suddenly a lot of the trivial stuff fell away and they felt closer to their friends or they suddenly remembered this is what I love to do, and who knows how long I'm going to be here. Let me make the most of my life rather than getting diverted or distracted into things that aren't really going to sustain me. Yeah, and I also think that there was a sense that, you know, this notion that we often lived to pre-pandemic, that life was all about preparing, that it was a run-up for the real thing, you know, and one day we'd arrive at the real main event, you know, and and I know that that was my mindset, that I was doing everything almost like a dress rehearsal. The pandemic hit and I went, oh, my God, this shit's real. Like, we've got to live now. This is There's no dress rehearsal. Game on, you know. And I think, I think some of us held on to that after the pandemic and have honoured it. I certainly am trying to by living as fully as possible because the fragility is, is very apparent. Choose your existential, you know, nightmare. They're, they're kind of all in front of us, and so it makes me cherish life more than ever. It's one of one of those paradoxes. I suppose another paradox that you explore, where you've explored for several decades now, is finding stillness in travel because I think that's really key. We can travel frenetically, ticking off bucket list items. But we can also choose to travel where we take our home with us, you know, wherever we go. And I think that's something that you also explore in this latest book as well. Can you sort of maybe speak to how you do that? What are some, dare I say, it, life hacks, tips for actually doing that? Yes. And before I get to that, which is a very essential question, I really enjoyed what you were saying before. And it, it reminded me what you were saying about your experience in the pandemic, that that evening when my family home burnt down and I was stuck pretty much in the middle of the flames for three hours, saved by a good Samaritan. When finally I was able to get free, I drove down to a friend's house. I bought a toothbrush, which was the only thing I had in the world. And because I'm a journalist, I wrote an article the evening of the fire when 450 houses were burnt down in our town. And I ended that little article for Time magazine with a poem I'd picked out in Japan a few years earlier from the 17th century in which the Japanese writer said, my house burnt down. I can now see better the rising moon. In other mm. words, the very night I lost everything in the world, something in, in me intuited this wasn't the worst thing in the world, and actually I could see my priorities much more clearly. And although, of course, it was a shock 
to lose everything. In the months that followed, I also saw it was a liberation from some of my habits, the way travel is, and that when it came, you know all about this more than I do, but when it came to replacing my things, I didn't need 90% of the furniture and the clothes and the books I had accumulated. I could live much more lightly, almost <laughs> traveling with my seven kilos. And I didn't have any notes for all the books I was planning to write, so I had to write from my heart and my memory and my imagination, which of course, much deeper than my notes. And I didn't have a physical home in California anymore. So I thought, let me move to the home of my heart, the place where I really believe I belong full time and, and went entirely over to Japan. So I love what you were saying about how it's easy it is to think we're preparing for something. And the real thing happens, whether you want it or not, and whether it's mm. a pandemic or a burning house. In terms of the stillness, I mean, I know you've spoken to my my old friend, uh, the Dalai Lama and nuns, and they all know <laughs> much more about it than I do. But I think the best thing I've done in my life is every three months here in California, I go on retreat with some Benedictine monks. And I'm not a Christian, and I don't go to the services. But just three days in silence so clears my head and so reminds me what is important in my life. And so sifts out all the clutter that I come back pretty much a different person, which is what one wants in any trip. And travel doesn't always do that. It depends on the destination. But I agree with you that seeing one place for two weeks makes more sense than seeing 14 places in, in seven days. And because you're living more simply on the road and without those familiar ways of defining yourself. I think there's opportunities for coming upon things that you don't find when you're living a much more cluttered life. But yeah. I sometimes think that, tra I mean, you know this because you, you meditate and you travel a lot, but I think of travel as like going out to a farmer's market and buying lots of vegetables and spices. That stillness is how I turn all that into a meal. Stillness is how <laughs> I take experience and I turn it into meaning. Or I take the many sights I've gathered along the way and I try to turn them into insights. So travel is a great means to, to trying to understand the world better. But I think that understanding can only come <laughs> when you're sitting in one place. And, and sometimes I remember that I can only really be moved when I'm sitting still. So let's say I'm doing, let's say I'm going to France with you next week. I think the key moments in my trip would come when I'm sitting very, very calmly in front of something that really stirs me. And that's when I get transformed, not probably when I'm riding the subway or I'm racing to get to the Louvre before it closes at five o'clock or, or whatever. I think it's those moments of quiet when one's grounded enough that one can actually become somebody different. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I've got a slightly different take on that, Pico. I wonder what you think of this. I often find that it's the the hardness of travel. It's those raw moments where you're pushed, there's too many noises, there's too many people, and you are forced, you know, you're rendered choiceless, that freedom of being rendered choiceless, to find a way to cope. And, and of course, the thing you turn to, the only thing that works when you are fragmented and frazzled in your life is stillness. So I will go and find a church. The wonderful thing about the world is that there are churches everywhere or monasteries or, you know, just quiet um, places of, of prayer. And in an airport, I will go to the prayer room. In a busy city, I will go and find a quiet, cool chapel and I will meditate and have some of the best meditations I've ever experienced. So sometimes I find, again, it's about that edge that travel takes you to. It will actually take me to a more profound stillness rather than that flaccid stillness that sometimes I'll get if I'm meditating at home where it's a bit rote. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And and it's almost, I mean, travel sometimes can remind you of the flimsiness of, of movement and, and the, the urgency of stillness. I know just what you mean. I remember when I went to New York to interview for a job and I had three interviews in quick succession. Really, the only way I could prepare for that in the middle of a busy city was to walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral and just sit there in the stillness amidst the, the candles with the light coming through the stained glass windows. And now whenever I go to New York, which is one of the busier places I know, just as you were saying, I, I ground myself by going to that same cathedral. The other experience I've had, and I, I, I'm sure you've had it many times over, is I remember once I was having to drive right the way across Yemen in the middle of the night through a civil war with teenagers <laughs> carrying assault weffled, weapons all around me. And at some point I realized I have to surrender. There's nothing I can do to make this a happy outcome. I'm in the hands of the heavens. And I'm grateful for that surrender because when I'm in my regular life, again, I have the illusion of control. And actually, I probably am just as much at the mercy of the fates when I'm at home as anywhere. But travel sometimes when it's very difficult forces you to give up trying to impose your designs on the world and mm. saying to the world, take me over, I'm in your hands, you have better ideas about where I should be or what I should be doing than I do. So, I mean, I think that's quite an emancipation also. Yeah, I do. I might shift tax a little here. One of your chapters in your book is about your experience in Jerusalem. And I've just returned from Jerusalem. I was there about six months ago. And of course, it's one of the, the paradises, quote unquote, that you explore in the book, all of which, of course, have a darkness inherent in them. And Jerusalem is a really intriguing place. I'm not the first person to observe this, but it's almost like it's a microcosm of all the paradoxes, all the contradictions, all of the ironies and the sufferings tied up in being a human. And you spent 
quite a bit of time. You returned day after day to the church of the Sepulchre. Is that how you say it, the Sepulchre? Mm. Yes, or Sepulchre, maybe the Holy Sepulchre, yes. Yes, Sepulchre. And it's the church, it fascinated me. It's the church where apparently I think Jesus was hung on the cross or hanged on the cross, and then also they say that he was buried there somewhere. But it's a surreal experience, isn't it, because there's six sort of Christian divisions that get to share the church and it's literally divvied up, right? There's a chapel here that belongs to the Coptics. I think the Egyptians, is it, have the roof or the Armenians have the rooftop, like a little shed on the roof and there's a timeshare scheme. So I think every hour or something, you know, various representatives of these churches do a lap of the various chapels and and you know throw out some incense and and it's it's clockwork and it's it it is it's really fascinating but i'm wondering what took you back there day after day from reading that chapter it seems like you spent almost every day of your time in jerusalem going back there trying to work out what it was all about yeah because as you experience it is so magnetic you know i think places have charisma just as people do and jerusalem is one of those places i will sometimes be walking down the street in in japan and i will feel myself pulled towards jerusalem and what's striking about that is i'm not christian i'm not muslim i'm not jewish and yet sometimes i'm moved almost to tears by that place and as you said when i stay there i usually stay in a little guest house in the old city and I wake up while it's still dark and I hurry down those barely paved narrow lanes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then I walk a- away from the place where Jesus was perhaps crucified, where all the people are praying and, and sobbing. And I'll go to the other side of the church where there's this almost empty cave. There's a room, small room, I know the nothing one. there. Do you know the one? And it's got mm, a rocky ledge and a little down candle. into it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I just sit there for hours and I'm brought almost to tears. And as you said, you know, it's such a curious place because these six Christian orders share the same roof, sleep, share the same space, sleep under the same roof. And yet if the Franciscans step one millimeter into the Greek Orthodox area, they start going after one another with brooms and literally various Christian orders have come to outright warfare with the governments of neighboring nations having to intercede to bring peace to these people, even though they share the same faith. And so, as you said, Jerusalem is this amazing microcosm where the city of faith is the city of conflict. And yet for all the conflict, I, I wouldn't say Jerusalem is beautiful or pleasant or comforting, but wow, is it powerful. And there's something there that can't be doubted. So I, I almost come away from Jerusalem feeling that what we do with religions, which is sometimes turn them into ideologies and very divisive weapons, is not always so enlightened. But something about the religious longing and the religious impulse is really true. And so Jerusalem is like, uh, it's a center of light. It, it brings out in many of us a yearning that perhaps we didn't know existed. But when we start putting names or texts to that yearning, it, it comes down to earth. And I, I think I say in that book that Jerusalem is a sad story about what humans do with the heavens or with the holy. But that yes. doesn't mean the holy doesn't exist. It just means that we humans can make a mess of it. But the holy is still there and I feel the sacred very strongly in in places like Jerusalem or actually as you know one of my chapters is about uh, inner Australia as I think of it the the great red center of your country and when I go there I feel like an intruder and a trespasser because I don't know 
theology that belongs to the indigenous peoples, but I feel something really strong there and I can't deny the existence of something charged and potent. There's a there's a wonderful quote actually that sums up that contrast you just speak to. And I might just read it out if if that's okay. Because it really, yeah, it really grabbed me. So you write Inner Australia has shaken me because it had shown me how threadbare every human settlement and certainty must remain. The traditional owners had learned to read the signs of brush fire and flash flood, yet their wisdom seemed to come in the form of knowing how little they could do to control them. And that is so true, Pico. Yet here in Jerusalem, because you wrote this, I think, in your Jerusalem chapter, Humans were so sure of their gods that each one drew in rough, bold strokes his own image of paradise on top of somebody else's. It was dangerously easy to believe that what we do with heaven is even more important than what heaven does to us. I think that really sums up that contrast between the Indigenous understanding of spirituality and what goes on in Jerusalem, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you alighted on that paragraph because I think that's the heart of the book. And as I listen to you read it, it strikes me it's the difference between humility and humble pride. And I think traditional cultures, as in Australia, have a reverence and defer to the heavens or the gods or whatever names they put to it. But those of us who feel that we're bigger than our gods or we can lay down doctrines, I think we're overstepping our bounds quite a bit usually. Yeah. I've spent a fair bit of time in the desert and in sort of outback towns and I'm spooked. I'm often spooked. And I think it's got a lot to do because it confronts my learnings, my Christian learnings. It it throws everything on its head. And I quite like that disorientation, but it creates this really vast melancholy, which is magnified by the land, you know, the infiniteness of the desert. Yeah, it's a very expansive emotional place to be, I find. Yes. And as you know, spooked is very much how I feel. But like you, I'm glad to be spooked because it's a way of just being reminded that there are things out there far larger than I am. And and when I called the book The Half-Known Life, part of me was thinking that my image of our lives now is of this little tent up in the Himalayas where we may have a lantern or two and we'll probably have a torch or a flashlight, but we're surrounded by this huge darkness, pockmarked with stars or the silver outline of mountains. And really the amount we know and the amount we control is very tiny and there's this vastness outside. And I certainly Hmm. feel that as much in, in the center of Australia as as anywhere. Maybe because I'm I'm not Australian, I'm just a visitor. It's not so much melancholy as just a kind of useful humbling. But uh, Mm. melancholy is a very moving way of of putting it because that desert really puts us in place, doesn't it? It reminds us how tiny we are and how, how, how little we know about anything, really. Yeah, being in a tent also puts us in our place, right? A flimsy piece of nylon between us and the the world that we've come to fear, you know. I find that very, very humbling no matter where I am. And I've I've camped in the middle of cities as well, so (laughs) it can work there too. (laughs) Hey, Vico, I, I know that Leonard Cohen was, well, became a friend of yours and you were friends for, for 20 odd years. And I'd love for you to give a bit of an inside take, if you're comfortable, on something that I reference in one of my books. I reflect on the fact that he famously took five years to write that beautiful song, Hallelujah. And 
it's baffled me. It's impressed me. I, I refer to it often, you know, to sort of sh- share the lesson that anything any good takes a long time and that that's important. I sometimes use it to justify how long it takes me to write a book. I think I, re- I reference it in the book that took me seven years to write. So <laughs> it, it, it brings great comfort to me that Leonard Cohen took five years to write a song. But I'm wondering if you could share an ins- any insights into the human that he was the kind of human that could persevere like this on something important. And I think you experienced his capacity for sitting in silence and and waiting from the first moment you met him, which is when you went to interview him as a journalist. What could you share from, from all of that? Gosh, so much, Sarah. I must say, I, I tend to write very slowly now too. And the slower the writing, the happier I am. The more <laughs> I feel that it's coming from the depths and not just me babbling away from the top of my head. And you're right, when I, fir- I first visited him in 1995, driving up in the end of December, four in the morning, into the cold, high, dark mountains behind Los Angeles, where he was living as a monk in a Zen center for five and a half years and in a very sparse cabin where I actually saw the 80 notebooks in which he was writing one verse after another of Hallelujah. And one of his other songs, Anthem, he actually spent 12 years on, the famous one in which he says there's a crack in everything. Is that right? The light comes in. Yeah, 12 wow. years on a Oh, on a I'm going to have to build on my anecdote now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, there's a, yeah, there's a famous story of how he met Dylan and they were chatting about writing. And you, I'm sure you've heard this. And he asked Dylan how long it had taken him to write a song. And Dylan said 15 minutes. And Dylan asked Cohen how long it had taken him. And he said two years, but he was kidding because it actually took him five years or, or seven years. But what really moved me was when I, when I arrived at the mountain, he was waiting for me as my car drove up. He insisted on carrying my bags into the little cabin where I was to stay. He instantly started heating up, uh, cooking a dinner for me. And here was Leonard Cohen, age 61. He could be doing anything in the world with anyone in the world. And he had chosen to give himself to this backbreaking discipline. So he was literally scrubbing floors, shoveling, shoveling snow, looking after the 88-year-old Japanese head of the community. And he just completely emptied himself out as if there was no Leonard Cohen left. And he was just an anonymous grunt in black robes who was there to serve. And it was an extraordinary thing. And even when he came down from the mountain, whenever I would visit him in his very modest home in a pretty rough part of Los Angeles, he would literally be standing at the door waiting for every visitor. And you know, his first question would be, what can I cook for you? Um, Mm. and talk about humility. So I think anybody who saw him on those last tours for the final six years of touring or even just saw videos of that could sense how wise and deep and humble a man he was. But I would say in private he was even wiser and deeper and and more humble, partly because he was so good at, at silence. And I think that was a skill that he had refined in the monastery and something of what you're responding to in Hallelujah reflects the silence from which every word came. He wasn't bringing out words quickly or songs quickly. He was sitting and sitting and sitting for months until a word emerged. And I remember when I first would visit him in Los Angeles, we'd have a pleasant enough lunch with his daughter who shared his house. And then he 
grabbed two folding chairs and took them out into his tiny garden, looking out on this quiet residential street. And I sat down next to him, and I sat there, and I sat there, and I sat there, (laughs) and he didn't say a word. And maybe 20 minutes passed, we were in absolute silence. And I thought, well, maybe this is a gentle hint. And I said, oh, you know, you must be busy. I should leave you. And he looked at me beseeching. He said, please don't go. And it goes back to what you and I were saying about travel. He had realized that the deepest form of communication came in silence. And that was the real sign of intimacy and trust and togetherness. We didn't need to say a word. And he would do this with many people who visited him. Just sit there in in absolute silence. And given that he was probably the most eloquent writer I will ever meet and the most articulate master of words, again, it was this amazing renunciation. He has that beautiful song, If It Be Your Will, that really moves me because when I, you know, I grew up listening to his early songs and they're all about him charting his destiny, him leaving the girlfriend behind because he has to follow his spiritual path. He's field commander Cohen, whose backup group is called the army. He's on top of everything. And then when he became a monk as he grew older, you know, he said, if it be your will, I shall sing no more. I'll, mm. I'll just say nothing at all. Um, really, uh, apart from the Dalai Lama, Leonard is far and away the most impressive human I've ever met. And he just radiated some quality of depth and holiness that <laughs> you never encounter anywhere else. Yeah, I I sort of get into a slight panic thinking about that idea of sitting for five years on one song with eighty notebooks of of lyrics and 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 song notes because I sit uncomfortably with my process, my deliberation, my my consideration, and I like listening to you to describe his practice of stillness because really it is about familiarity you've got to go into that unknowing space of it's it takes real sort of bravery and it takes I suppose a commitment to defining yourself as quite a a renegade who is not going to be caught up in the normal time structures and that feels like freedom it's a very scary place to be but I think anyone who perfects an art form and goes through the pain of it all it's kind of the point isn't it you're 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 actually toiling away at arriving at a space where you're really cool with yourself in in that process of discovering and allowing, because that's where we all want to be. That's that's the memory, isn't it? That's the memory that we're constantly trying to find again, to, to touch again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I listen to you, I think he, all of us, and he especially, were going into that dark forest and you don't know what's going to leap out at you there. And it really takes courage. And I think what distinguishes Leonard Cohen as an artist and as a human are two things, a great gift for honesty and a great gift for intimacy. And I think one reason his poems and songs speak to so many people and why they feel so wise is that he's so unsparing towards himself. He's wise to all his faults, his sins, his imperfections. He never claims to be holy or in fact, to be wise. And you sense that that kind of candor, unflinchingness can only come from sitting quietly and looking into the dark unblinkingly for a a very, very long time. And I loved what you said about being outside time structures, because I think it's only by living in that space outside time that you can create something that will last through time. And his, his songs are the 
opposite of impermanent and perishable. They're so solid and they come out of so deep and strong a framework. I, I imagine they will last for a very, very long time. And it's mm. interesting because before you mentioned him, when we were talking about 15 minutes ago, <laughs> in relation to what I was saying about the tent, I was thinking about Leonard. And I remembered that when I first met him, I interviewed one of his backup singers. And she said how she just had a baby. It was the worst possible time to go on tour with him in Europe in, the, I think, the 1990s. But she knew this was a spiritual quest, a pilgrimage she couldn't say no to. And she said that when she was singing behind him in the old theatres of Europe, something came out in her and from her and to her that just shook, shook her soul. And she said she couldn't say what it was, because if she said what it was, that would suggest she was greater than that. But whatever she was feeling hmm. was so much greater than she was, she couldn't begin to put words to it. And she also said, to speak to what you were just saying, that they would rehearse the same song three, four hours, again and again and again, to the point where his backup singers were often in tears. But they knew that was the price they had to pay, like you or me at our desk, in order to come to that point of ex absolute honesty and intensity and truth that he wanted to get them to. He didn't want anything uh, frothy or trivial or fleeting. He was inviting all the people around him to some deeper part of themselves. And it's very striking that when you hear the people who knew him very well speak about him, they speak with the same heightened elevation that Leonard Cohen spoke. It's as if he he brought everybody up to this very rare level. And it, it actually also reminds me of what you and I were just talking about, because if somebody were to say to me, who was Leonard Cohen, I would say he reminded me of a rabbi on the back streets of Jerusalem who'd been there for a thousand years. I mean, he had that very old soul quality to him. Yeah. Yeah. What you say about words and, and that woman who felt that she didn't want to put it into words, words are another paradox, aren't they? Because also, it can be, well, it's the space between the words and that's why poetry and, and so beautiful songs touch us so deeply, more so than big, long slabs of prose, because it's the space between the words, it's the rhythm, it's what's not said that so often, well, allows us to go into that awesome space. And I think that's what Leonard Cohen was able to yeah. do. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. Sorry to interrupt you, but I was thinking that's you and the Greek goat herd again. You had so <laughs> few words in common, but truly, I mean, the way you were describing it, it was a very important, truthful relationship about essential things. And all the words you couldn't share, it didn't matter because you were sharing something more important, more essential mm. than words, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, so I, I I couldn't agree more with you. And his Japanese teacher, who incidentally spoke very little English, and Leonard spoke no Japanese, but they were inseparable friends for 45 years. And the Japanese teacher would say, if I talk, we'll just fall into an argument. If I'm silent, we're brought together. And I think you know, Leonard quickly appreciated the wisdom of that, especially as as a man of words. It's funny, oh. I mean, I could go on about him endlessly, but I will just say that my, my wife grew up in Kyoto, city of 1600 temples, surrounded by Zen monks and Zen masters. So I took her up to Leonard's Zen 
community once on the top of the mountain. And she didn't know anything about Leonard Cohen. And when we went into the Zendo, where they were all meditating, <laughs> she thought that Leonard Cohen was the abbot of the monastery because his form was so perfect and he was so disciplined and motionless in the way he sat there. She, as a kind of connoisseur of Zen monks, said, wow, that's the teacher in this community. And I said, no, actually, it's Leonard Cohen. He's a famous musician and he's a student of the Japanese teacher. And, you know, the other, all the other students who were there at the time I was visiting, all in their 20s and 30s, and they were going through Sashin, which, as you may know, is a seven-day midwinter retreat where they do, basically, they meditate for seven days and seven nights without stopping. 16, 18, sometimes 20 hours a day. And there he was in his 60s, putting himself through this this discipline, even though everyone else around him, apart from the teacher, was half his age. Hmm. I have taken so much from that extended anecdote, so thank you. I am actually wondering what you do, though, Pico. I know that you have a practice of stillness. You pulse backwards and forwards from movement to stillness as a way of being how how do you do your stillness and your silence and how often and 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 what's it do for you yes i mean it's interesting it, it this ties together all that we've been discussing because i often say that silence has really been my teacher i've been really lucky to spend a lot of time with leonard cohen and his holiness dalai lama and a group of benedictine monks but i'm not a member of any religious group and the form of stillness I take, which I touched on earlier, is that I make sure, ideally four times a year, every season, I drive up from my mother's house here in California to this Benedictine hermitage high above the sea in, in California. And I just sit there in the, in the silence. I take walks. I watch the stars. I read books. But I don't do anything in particular. And, and that's been my great experience of stillness and has opened a door to what monks do with much greater rigor throughout their entire lives. And of course, part of the beauty of going there is there's no internet, there's no telephone, there's no television. But it's much more than that. There's the stillness is an active presence. The silence is something distinct. And when you step out of your car there, I think almost anybody feels that it's almost like these transparent panes of glass that have been created by years and years of devotion and prayer and meditation, that it's a tangible presence that you step into. And the silence is not just the absence of noise or a quiet place. It's it's something very vivid. And all, you know, as when I'm driving up, like most of the time I'm worried about deadline and I'm conducting an argument with some friend and I'm <laughs> yes. fretting about something I fail to do. And I step out of my car in that silence, all of that falls away. And I look out on the radiant ocean, absolutely still, in front of me and I start noticing the you know the rabbit scuttling through the undergrowth or the hummingbird on my fence and suddenly it's like I've come to my senses I'm out of my head and I'm somewhere very very real and so I've I've tried to replicate this elsewhere I remember I went to New Norcia a lovely monastic town in western Australia driving out of Perth a couple of hours but there's something about this particular place and the fact I've been going there for 32 years made more than 100 retreats there. And in the old days, I would stay for three weeks at a time in absolute silence. And you can imagine what a luxury that was. Now it's more like three days, but three days in silence feels like a three-month vacation as far as yeah. I'm concerned. So 
I, and and I think the reason I often stress that is probably anybody listening to this conversation has some place not far from where she lives. And so if you have the means and if you can make the time to do it, this is something available to everybody. And we all say, I don't have time, I don't have time. And then we go and watch a movie or have a six-hour meal. So we probably do have time if we can just bring ourselves to it. Yeah, I like that you've got your own take on that pulse, the pulse between movement and stillness, the outer and the inner, because I think a lot of people get very, very anxious about having to withdraw and find that stillness, you know, in this kind of radical way. And I'm like, oh, do it as you need to do it. I meditate, but I know you don't meditate as such. And I also know that you've said you don't do holidays as such, but this is your way of going back and forth and ensuring that you can do that that delicate, intricate, paradoxical dance that I think defines our weird, weird existence on this planet. And just to, to close, I a number of years ago, in response to that book that I've been referencing where I quote you, I, I talk about Leonard Cohen and his incredible patience with writing a song. It's called First We Make the Beast Beautiful. Somebody wrote to me, a stranger, out of the blue, and they just wrote, Dear Sarah, you are all striving, no arriving, and, and then they signed off. And I've got to say, and I don't know who that person was, I've lost track of who wrote me that letter, but it it was the, the greatest comfort. I felt seen, but I also felt that my an okayness had been granted to me. And I feel that the way you talk about all of this grants a certain okayness because you really do highlight that the wrestle with this paradox is what matters. And I think a lot of people resist the wrestling think that, thinking that they've got it all wrong. Have I got that right? Is that is that how you do see things, Pico? Yes. I mean, I think my, the wise people I've known have said, just to take the first step on the journey, just to leave home, that's all you need. That's that's the discovery. It's just making that initial commitment to there's something out there bigger than I am and maybe being exposed to it will, will make me clearer person than I would be otherwise. You put it perfectly. And when you talked about going to the monastery being my holiday, I was thinking it's literally my holy day. That's what a holiday is meant to be, a day spent with holiness. And I absolutely agree with you about the anxiety. And I think sometimes when any of us go into the wilderness, as you in the desert or Leonard Cohen in his monastery, it is dark things that come up. But I'd mm -hmm. much rather they come up when I'm in a place of absolute calm and radiance and joy than when I'm in the shopping mall or driving on the freeway or make, trying to go to 10 appointments in a single day. If the shadows and the beasts leap out at me then, I'm really in trouble. But when I'm in a place of great clarity, I, I can see them from what they are and I can actually work through my problems. So even if you go into silence or into a kind of desert or wilderness and what comes out is unsettling, better it come out then than anywhere else and better you wrestle that to the ground there in very kind surroundings than less so. But yes, I love that we're all striving and never arriving. I never want or hope to come to a conclusion. And the best questions I ask of myself are the ones I would never hope to answer. But I, I love the unanswerable questions because I think that's where most of us live. Yep, the questions just get deeper, which is is wonderful. Pico, you've been so generous with your time. You've been so generous with me. The way that you 
congratulate me on on the way that I've asked a question. I've I've so enjoyed it and I've really needed it just now. You know, like many of us, I live in self-doubt about, you know, whether I'm doing any of this, this mortal coil correctly. And so I I appreciate the way you've reached out to to meet me at where I'm at. It's noted and very much appreciated. So yeah, I wish you well. I know that you've about to complete a new book and I'll be looking out for it and hopefully we can have you back on Wild to talk about that one too. And thank you, Sarah. It's really been a delight and truly I, I'm, I'm so humbled and impressed by the journey you're taking off on. So I wish you all joy in Paris and with all the unexpectedness that's going to come and, and thank you for taking that leap and giving the rest of us the courage to follow you and go along with you. Frankly, I have very little to add to that conversation except to say I went away from it feeling very grounded about heading away. By the time you listen to this, I'll be elsewhere, somewhere in the world, moving to feel moved. And I invite you to travel with me as I do this for the next six months or so. Who knows? It might be longer, it might be shorter. Over at Substack and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. It's sarahwilson.substack.com. So Pico is a very generous podcast guest. You probably picked up on that. He's the best kind of guest. And I will say, I was going to ask him at a number of friends urging for his take on the Dalai Lama's recent controversy over his interaction with a boy at a temple in India that's sticking out of the tongue thing. But I decided not to, not so much because I thought it would ruin the otherwise expansive feel of our chat. Um, with a potentially contentious switch in vibe. But also, and I guess it's related, I'm just not that into making more unhelpful noise in the world right now when there's clearly contexts and subtleties and nuances at play in a lot of issues in a complex world. So, yes, you'll probably have to get an answer to that one elsewhere. Anyway, I'm sure I could find a pithy travel quote to round off this point, but I think I'll go with this one from Thoreau, which I really love. It matters not how far you go. What matters is how alive you are. Keep it wild, fellow travellers, and, uh, yeah, join me over at Substack. It's where I do all my commenting. I share my travel stories. I have the, the good conversations. Until next week, yes, stay wild. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.